people don't realize, I think, how hardcore Calvin was in Geneva. Uh, if you think the Baptist or the whatever kind of pastor it was that was banning dancing and Footloose was hardcore, try having any kind of fun in 16th century Geneva. Kenny Loggins and Kevin Bacon would have been roasted on a spit. again and welcome to another tasteful episode of On the Journey with Matt and Ken. Uh, we're glad you're along. If you don't know much about the Coming Home Network, which produces On the Journey, check us out at chnetwork.org. We encourage you to subscribe to the channel for uh, all the back episodes you may have missed, all the future episodes that you won't want to miss. Uh, I'm Matt Swaim, along with my colleague Ken Hensley. Ken, great to continue this series with you. How are you, my friend? I'm doing great. I'm happy to be here, Matt. So we've done is Sola Scriptura Scriptural we've done is Sola Scriptura historical, and now we're in the middle of this whole question of whether Sola Scriptura is workable. So start us off. That's right. Okay. When we left uh, the scene last week, Martin Luther was essentially tearing his hair out over the explosion, really, of interpretations and divisions that had resulted from, okay, wait for this, that had resulted from his own teaching of Sola Scriptura and the right of private judgment, the, the right of private interpretation. Quoting Luther, there are as many beliefs as there are heads. He was complaining. Now, apparently, even some of Luther's own students followed his example, and they took their stand on Scripture alone, as he had, and wound up rejecting aspects of what Luther was teaching uh, in, in order to stand on their own interpretations of Scripture. And Luther complained about that, too. Uh, here's another quotation. How many doctors have I made through preaching and writing? Now they say, be off with you. Go off with you. Go to the devil. We were talking last week about how colorful Luther is, you know. This, oh, yeah. Yeah, we, this would be a great time to invoke the Luther insult generator that you can Google and just <laughs> yeah. turn out. He's, he's going off like this all the time. Be off with you. Go to the devil. And I'm quoting him again now. Thus it must be. When we preach, they laugh. When we get angry and threaten them, they mock us, snap their fingers at us, and laugh in their sleeves. So, I remember when I read these passages for the first time, and I was, you know, was pondering this. It, it it really makes you wonder. After all, you know, Luther had stood before the Catholic authorities at the Diet of Worms, and Luther had said, "I'm quoting him again. I consider myself convicted by the testimony of Scripture, which is my basis." Here I stand, I can do no other. Did Luther not expect that others might follow his example and make their own stand or make Scripture their basis? You know, these questions come to you. Did Luther not imagine that others might find themselves convicted by the testimony of Scripture and maybe even disagree with his interpretation and want to say, as he did, uh, here I stand, you know, I, I can do no other? It, 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 these questions just sort of float out of the text pretty easily. Yeah, it seems like he didn't follow it to the logical conclusion of what kind of door he was he was really opening. And of course, when you and I watched you know Luther movies, or when I read Here I Stand, 
I, all you could think of is, yeah, no church is going to tell me what to do. I'm going to I'm going to settle this for myself. Not realizing how, how much I myself even disagreed with Luther's conclusions of what the scripture actually taught. That's a good point. You know, so much in life, obviously, we do this sort of thing all the time, and that is, we launch through a door without knowing all the implications that will follow. And without knowing whether we're going to be consistent with those implications once we understand them. But here's Luther referring to the right of private judgment. Remember, Luther had said, quote, in these matters of faith, to be sure, each Christian is for himself, Pope and Church. And so I wonder, did he not expect that Christians accepting his premise of sola scriptura, the right of private judgment, might decide that he was wrong in some of the things that he was teaching? So here's the question, though, that immediately follows, uh, you know, in, in, in terms of chronology, that follows from all of this. Here's the question we want to look at today. How did Luther and the other reformers respond? How did they respond to the doctrinal chaos that was unleashed by their own preaching of sola scriptura and the right of private judgment? What did they do? And let me just state it, and then we're going to spend a good amount of time illustrating and uh, chatting about it. Well, to promote the truth as they understood it, after all, truth was of the highest importance to Luther, Zwingli, Bucer, Calvin, all of them, and then to maintain unity in the Reformation, which again is important. So to promote the truth and to maintain unity, here's what the Reformers did. They began to prohibit their followers from exercising the right of private judgment that they continued to insist on for themselves. If you can gra grasp that, Matt. I can grasp that. And as the history shows, very often these reformers would align with like territorial princes who would form basically armies to enforce their doctrine. These men who yeah. had said, I will submit to no church are now like, you know, basically trying to get mm -hmm. the favor of various princes. I mean, this is this is the kind of war that breaks out in Germany that's not Martin Luther during the versus the Catholic Church. It's everybody versus everybody. Yeah, they, they brought down the boom. They basically taught the right of private judgment and that sola scriptura, only scripture is authoritative. And then when they saw what was happening and they saw the chaos that their teaching was unleashing, they brought down the boom. As, as you said, most often siding with princes to say, hey, let's go get the bad guys. And the bad guys were often... The Reformation bad guys, we're not talking yeah. about the Catholic bad guys here, we're talking about the Reformation bad guys. This is all guys. Northern Europe. The Catholics are all down yeah. south doing their own yeah. thing. One of my chief teachers and mentors and friends, really, Matt, during the time that I was beginning to learn the case for the Catholic faith was J Jimmy Aiken, who has been working at Catholic Answers in San Diego forever. Okay, now at the time, and by the way, I really, I still appreciate to this day Jimmy's openness. He used to drive up to LA and I would drive down and we would meet somewhere halfway between for lunch. Uh, he, he did this a number of times and came, came to my home, stayed at my house so that we could talk about Catholicism, Protestantism, the issues and all of that. I still just want to put out a, a word here of gratitude to Jimmy for those Jimmy's times. Jimmy's the best. Now, the amount of patience he has for people who are just trying to figure things out and the amount of yeah. thoroughness with which he replies to them is, it's, it's unparalleled really. He's a good guy. I understand he won't fly on an airplane, but, but other no, than that... No, <laughs> but he will drive halfway between San yeah, Diego yeah, and L.A. True. Well, Jimmy had written a little article at the time under the title, Sola Scriptura, Theory or Practice, which, is, which was really enlightening for me. And it's an article that I still have. Okay, in this article, what Jimmy did was he elaborated on this contradiction, this tension that we're beginning to highlight here. 
this tension that existed between the reformers' theory, sola scriptura, and the right of private judgment, and their practice, but only for me, not for you, <laughs> okay? The contradiction between the theory and the practice, that's what he's writing about. And in the middle of this article, to illustrate his point, he quoted at length from historians Will and Ariel Durant. Now, Matt, I want you to listen to what these historians have to say. I want you just to just take it in. Talk about colorful. These guys are colorful, too. Um, they're talking about the response of Luther and the response of the other reformers to the theological um, chaos, splintering, and division that resulted from their example and their teaching of Sola Scriptura and the right of private judgment. Some of the passages are a little bit long, but they are so, so eye-opening that I think it's worth reading them so that we can hear and our, and our viewers, our listeners can hear. So I'm beginning to quote now. This is from Will and Ariel Durant's history. It's instructive to observe how Luther moved from tolerance to dogma as his power and certainty grew. In his open letter to the Christian nobility, dated 1520, Luther ordained, and now I'm quoting, every man a priest with the right to interpret the Bible according to his private judgment and individual light. Luther should have never grown old. Already in 1522, so we're talking about two years after him writing his open letter to the nobility, Christian nobility, already in 1522, he was outpapaling the popes, quoting Luther again, I do not admit that my doctrine can be judged by anyone, even the angels. He who does not receive my doctrine cannot be saved. Now, I mean, you know what that sounds like? That sounds like a twist on extra ecclesiam nulla salus, right? No salvation outside yeah, the church, yeah. which is a Catholic principle and one of the most commonly misinterpreted Catholic principles. Yeah. He's literally saying there's no salvation outside of my interpretation of the scriptures, even though I just said that everybody should have the right to private judgment. That's right. Okay, back to Durant, quoting, Luther now agreed with the Catholic Church that, quote, Christians require certainty, definite dogmas, and a sure word of God which they can trust to live and die by, unquote. That's Luther speaking. As the church in the early centuries of Christianity, divided and weakened by a growing multiplicity of ferocious sects, had felt compelled to define her creed and expel all dissidents, so now Luther, dismayed by the variety of quarrelsome sects that had sprouted from the seat of private judgment, passed step by step from toleration to dogmatism. Now, quoting Luther again, all men now presume to criticize the gospel. Almost every old doting fool or prating sophist must, forsooth, be a doctor of divinity, unquote. Stung by Catholic taunts that he had let loose a dissolvent anarchy of creeds and morals, he concluded with the church that social order requires some closure to debate, some recognized authority to serve as an anchor of faith. Sebastian Franck thought that there was more freedom of speech and belief among the Turks than in the Lutheran states. How does this strike you, Matt? As a major double standard, and I can recognize that as someone who has held double standards at various points in my life, you know, because, you know, it's like, oh, you know, this is so unfair, you can't do that, well, but, but you know, but you let me do it. Like, there should be rules where nobody could cut in line at the, at the baseball game, but, you know, me, my son has to go to the bathroom. You know? Yeah, and the thing that strikes <laughs> me is, the thing that strikes me as I read this is that it's, it's, it's reasonable and really kind of inescapable that Luther would have to do this because he didn't only care about truth. 
He cared about unity, and he didn't want to see the the Reformation just fragment into a million denominations, no. sects, and he all didn't, that. And he d- wasn't just trying to say the, that everybody should be able to do anything. Mm-hmm. He was trying to say, I found the way that we should actually do things. Yeah, and do it my way, then. Yeah, right. Do it my way. Okay, at this point in Jimmy's article, he comments with a kind of wry mock incredulity, and this is what Jimmy says. But everyone knows that Luther was a man of fierce temper. Surely this was responsible for his attitude and made him unique among the reformers in his inconsistency with regard to private judgment, right? He then goes on to quote from Will and Ariel Durant a little bit later, I mean a little bit more. Other reformers rivaled or surpassed Luther in hounding heresy. Bucer of Strasbourg urged the civil authorities in Protestant states to extirpate all who professed a false religion. Such men, he said, this is Bucer in Strasbourg. Such men, Martin he Bucer, said, yeah. are worse than murderers. Even their wives and children and cattle should be destroyed. The comparatively gentle Melanchthon accepted the chairmanship of the secular inquisition that suppressed the Anabaptists, the, these are the forerunners of the Baptists, in Germany with imprisonment and death. He recommended that the rejection of infant baptism or of original sin or of the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist should be punished as capital crimes. Capital meaning death penalty, right? That's right. I mean, come on. He insisted on the death penalty for a sectarian who thought that heathens might be saved or for another who doubted that belief in Christ the Redeemer could change a a naturally sinful man into a righteous man. He demanded the suppression of all books that opposed or hindered Lutheran teachings so the writings of Zwingli and his followers were formally placed on the index of forbidden books in Wittenberg. That's intense. Yeah, and it's, it's, intense. it's the it's the opposite of what people think was happening in the Reformation. The popular narrative is these guys set everybody free. Suddenly, liberty reigned yeah. in Northern Europe. Suddenly, Germany became a place of free thought. Yeah, free and, if you're a certain kind of thought, right? I mean... Yeah, and you know what? At a, at a certain point, we're going to come back to the subject that I'm going to mention now, but I don't want to go, go into it deeply. But but Protestants thinking about this will immediately say, hey, well, the Catholic Church exerted its own authority too. It forced uh, uniformity. Well, the difference here is this. This is in keeping with the very foundational principle of, of Catholic theology, which is that there is an authoritative church, and that when these councils met and doctrines were defined, they were binding, and they needed to be accepted, and, and, and they were authoritatively pronounced, so that if you ran off on your own, you were violating the very principle of it. In the case of Protestantism, you have a contradiction between the, the, the basic fundamental principle, which is the Bible only, and the right of private judgment, and forcing conformity. These are in contradiction in the Protestant system, but they're not in the Catholic system. In fact, they fit together perfectly. But that's another whole... That's uh, a whole other yeah, episode, that's, man. That's another realm. But I wanted to throw that in because I knew that someone listening might just say, hey, you're reading about how these guys forced conformity. The Catholic Church does too. So why And we can we? set aside... You, this is also where you can get into a contest of, well, this group of people did that to these kind of people who disagreed yeah. with them. And, and you can get into like, this. these people burned X number of people. And these people like, you know, beat and yeah. whipped and put in stocks, this number of people. That's... That that's a that's a that's a dead end street. What matters is were they operating from a position where they thought that they should have authority or that their, their authority existed and that there should be some sense that there should be accountability to that authority. If it was enforced right. badly or well is a different question. Okay, so, so, so we've looked at Luther, and we've looked at Melanchthon, and we've looked at Bucer. At this point, Jimmy's still you know this is still Jimmy's article. 
At this point, Jimmy exclaims, and I'm quoting Jimmy now, yes, but we are still talking about the Lutheran threat of the Reformation. Surely the detached intellectual Calvinists were better, which leads me to a final section from Will and Ariel Durant's history. No one in Geneva, that is where Calvin reigned as pastor, in fact, reigned essentially as a king, no one in Geneva was to be excused from Protestant services on the plea of having a different or private religious creed. Calvin was as thorough as any pope in rejecting individualism of belief. This greatest legislator of Protestantism completely repudiated the principle of private judgment with which the new religion had begun. He had seen the fragmentation of the Reformation into a hundred sects, and he foresaw more. In Geneva, he would have none of them. There, that is in Geneva, a body of learned divines, Calvinist divines, <laughs> no doubt, Matt, would formulate an authoritative creed, a Calvinist creed, no doubt. Those Genevans who could not accept it would have to seek other habitats. People don't realize, I think, how hardcore Calvin was in Geneva. Uh, if you think the Baptists or the whatever kind of pastor it was that was banning dancing and Footloose was hardcore, try having any kind of fun in 16th century Geneva. Kenny Loggins and Kevin Bacon would have been roasted on a spit. I mean, this is like taking it to like the next level. And there are so many stories of how Calvin dealt with people who had even like the slightest disagreement with him or were caught dancing or, or any kind of frivolity. It was a very, very authoritarian structure under Calvin and Geneva. It certainly was. Okay. Now, you know uh, Jimmy Aiken, too. I do. I and do. Um, you know what a dry, wry, quiet sense of He's humor. He's a man with a very dry sense of humor and a big beard who loves Star Trek. He's fantastic. And he and he and he 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 calls certain dances. What are they called again? Those dances. He's a square and, dance caller. Yeah, but it's a certain kind of square dance that comes from England or Scotland or something. It's a well, I don't know. I mean, I'm where not you really... dress up in really colorful outfits and everything. Oh, I can't remember right now. I, okay. I, I, I'm not an expert on on the nuances in square dance communities. Okay, well, in this article that that Jimmy wrote, okay, sola scriptura theory or practice. Okay, pondering the inconsistency after reading all these quotations from Will and Ariel Durant. Pondering the inconsistency shown by the reformers to this whole issue, he concludes this section of his article by commenting that apparently, and now, and now I'm quoting Jimmy, apparently, all that here I stand, the word of God compels me, I can do no other stuff, had to be interpreted narrowly. I can do no other meant I can do no other. It did not mean that you could do something other if you felt the word of God compelling you. You had to do what I said because I was the one the word of God had compelled. And don't we, This isn't this like the fruit of individualism and relativism in like the present day? It's like everybody should be free. Also, everybody but me is wrong about everything. And if anybody, I mean, think about how many friendships are ruined because people yeah. have disagreement on one slight political point. Yeah. Now, I'm never speaking to Uncle Larry ever again after what he posted on Facebook. You know, I mean, yeah. But by <laughs> the way, I totally. Yeah. But by the way, I totally support freedom of speech. Yes. Yeah, and the so. right of each person to come to their own conclusion. Okay. But but what the, that doesn't mean that like anybody can do anything without being questioned, which is what uh, these authoritarian groups, uh, these how these groups mm -hmm. ended up becoming authoritarian in their in the way that they structured themselves. You know, let me go back and tie this into my own story, Matt. Okay, I'm still a Baptist pastor, all right, at the time that I'm reading this. 
Well, I could see that Jimmy was right in the basic point that he was making. And that is that the actions of the reformers, and this is the main leading reformers. I mean, and we haven't gone into England and all that, but it'd be the same thing. The actions of the reformers were in clear contradiction to their theory. Their practice contradicted their theory. At the same time, Matt, I was sympathetic really to their situation because I could see as an evangelical pastor that I was caught in the same dilemma that Luther was caught in and, and Calvin and Bucer and Melanchthon. I, I was caught in the same dilemma. And let me kind of fill that out for you and um, push it a bit. I was a child of the Reformation. I was a Baptist, which means I was one of those that Zwingli would have had executed. You know, and you read it too about how they did it. I mean, people were, to, Baptists were taken out on boats uh, out onto a lake and they said, hey, you want to be rebaptized? Great. And they put chains around them and threw them off into the lake. Okay. So I would have been one of those as a Baptist ex executed by Zwingli. And I would have been one of those that if I had been in Geneva, I would have been banished. All right. Well, as a Baptist though, and as a child of the Reformation, of course, I taught my congregation that the Bible alone ought to be treated as binding authority in their lives. I reminded them of this a number of times, you know. I reminded them that I was a mere infallible interpreter, that this was what, what I thought the Bible was teaching, but that they were free. In fact, Protestant pastors often say, it's your right and it's your duty to go home and search the scriptures and figure out for yourself whether you think what I'm teaching is true or false. And theoretically, that's a great, great idea, but what happens when it's tested? Yeah, that's... That's what I'm coming to. You know, this is what Protestant pastors say all the time. And as I thought about it, I realized, I realized, well, yeah, you know, I said that kind of thing because I was in a Baptist church. So there's the assumption that everyone sitting in the pews in front of me basically agrees with Baptist theology. And then since I studied more than any of them, and I'd, you know, I'd be working all week long in my office, you know, writing my sermon and getting it all together, that I had kind of an edge on them because I studied more. So the chances were slim that they were going to disagree with me. Okay, but that's the question. What would I have done if some smart person in my congregation had taken me up seriously on the things I was saying about their right and their duty to search the scripture and find out if I'm right or wrong? And they, they came went up home, to you and said, uh, Pastor Ken, I got a word. Yeah, I got a word. You're wrong. And in fact, um, what if this was a very respected teacher in the church, someone who taught the adult Sunday school class and had been doing that for 30 years? The koinonia class in your, in your Baptist church. <laughs> the koinonia, yeah. And, you know, what if he came to me and said, Pastor Ken, you're always telling us that the Bible alone is authoritative and that we, we have the right to read it and decide for ourselves. So um, I just want you to know that I've been doing that and I really think you're wrong. And I think the doctrine of this church in some significant ways is wrong. And I just wanted to let you know that I'm starting a Sunday school class next week. The title of my course is going to be Pastor Ken is Wrong. No, no, change that. Pastor Ken is Dead Wrong. And I just wanted to let you know in advance. How would I, how would I have responded? And, you know, so f first option, do you think that I would have looked at this man and said, this is wonderful. This is great news. I have. Thank been you. Teaching. I feel. A, I feel a check in my spirit. You know. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the Bible is authoritative alone. I, I. I always tell you that I'm a fallible interpreter, and I could be dead wrong. Hey, tell me how the course is going. I wish you well. That's not how I would have answered. And in fact, here's what I would have said to him. In fact, this is what I would have had to say and do in order to maintain unity in the church. And this is in an evangelical church that believes in sola scriptura and the right of private judgment. I would have met with him privately as many times as necessary. 
I would have walked through the issue slowly. I would have tried to convince him, Matt, that he was wrong and that I was right. And failing that, I would have had to explain to him kindly that um, he would either have to quit teaching his point of view or he'd have to take his teaching down the road to a congregation that agreed with him. Or start his own. Yeah, That's right. I, I would have had to show him the door. I mean, basically, I'm thinking about Calvin in Geneva. I would have had to explain to him, essentially, that my little congregation is sort of like Calvin's Geneva and that he would need to seek other habitats. I would have shown yeah. him the door. Yeah. And, and you know, I, I don't want to, I want to make sure we don't make light of this because on the theoretical and doctrinal yeah. level, this is like, well, this is how crazy it is to not follow this to its logical conclusions. But on the practical level, this happens every day in this country uh, and around the world where there's a division and half the congregation leaves and follows that person that yeah, was trusted. Happen. And they all used to be in the same room worshiping together. And it's heartbreaking. Families split over this stuff. That's why I'm saying that, yeah. I'm, symp- uh, that I'm sympathetic to this because I realize that I lived in that same dilemma as well. I've been through these kinds of things before. Yeah, it's awful. It, it just so happens that I didn't personally face this scenario during my 11 years as a pastor, but many do. And this is what happens. In fact, as a Baptist, I'm allowed to tell Baptist jokes once in a while. So what do you call the New Baptist Church up the road? I can't answer this because I was never Baptist. A Bible study gone wrong. Okay. Bible study anyway, wrong. that's the end of my joking, okay? <laughs> <laughs> but I, I do sympathize. Okay, but now let me push a little bit further. Imagine this gentleman comes back to me, though. You know, I'm, I'm setting this up to, to really kind of drill down to the problem, the, this theory or practice kind of dilemma. Imagine he comes to me and he says, Pastor Ken... You have to understand that I was baptized in this church. Um, I was raised in this church. My wife and I were married in this church. My children were born and raised in this church. They came to faith in Christ. They were baptized in this church. My dear wife died and is buried in this church lawn. Um, You know, uh, why is it that you get to uh, practice sola scriptura and the right of private judgment, and you get to teach the congregation the results of your own private study, but why is it that when I do it, I have to leave? How come I have to seek other habitats? I've been here in this church all my life. I my love dad these was people. a charter member that started this. Yeah. Yeah I, yeah, I love these people, and I want them to know the truth. You've only been a pastor here, Ken, for three years. So why don't you leave? What would I have I'm, said at that point? I guess I would have had to just pull the, dude, this is a Baptist church. If you have changed your view, you have to leave. Yeah. Even if I've only been here three weeks. Yeah. I, you know what I would have said? And, and I'm, I'm playing directly into your tra- the trap that you're setting right here, Ken. But I'll tell you what I've said. I would have said if I were in that situation. I would have said, okay, what's an authority outside of the scriptures that we both agree is authoritative? And can I appeal to that in some, some other way to show outside of the scriptures some weight of my interpretation? So you would have started reaching outside Sola Scriptura. I would have started reaching, and, and I wouldn't have been conscious that that's what I was doing. Mm-hmm. But I would have said something like, you know, but John Wesley says this, right? <laughs> or, or, or somebody yeah. else, right? I would have, I would have yeah. immediately appealed to some authority, third-party authority outside of the Scriptures to say, no, you, you know, that's, that's good and well, but that's, you've, you've fallen into error, Brother Tim, you know, because obviously John Wesley says, you know, in, in this passage that, that, that that's, that's not the interpretation. But again, I'm, I'm falling directly into the trap mm-hmm. you've just laid, Ken, and I'm not, I'm not doing it on purpose. 
No, well, that's that's fine. Whether you do it on purpose or accidentally, <laughs> you still fall into the trap. What does C.S. I mean, Lewis say? I'm not mad at the person there. who trips me on purpose. I'm mad at the person who trips me. And I'm not mad at the person who trips me by accident. I'm mad at the person who trips me on purpose, even if he doesn't actually succeed in tripping me. So either way, I fell into your trap. Well, see, <laughs> see, here's the thing: if you think through sola scriptura and the right of private judgment. You know, in matters of faith, each man is his own pope and church, that whole thing. If you think it through consistently, there is no binding authority on earth outside of the Bible. Your pastor, you could treat as an authority. He knows more than you do, maybe, but he's not a binding authority. Um, the The counsel of your elders is an authority of sorts, but it's not binding. The creed of your denomination is an authority of sorts, but it's not a binding authority. See, that's the difference, because I have heard this argument, Matt, I heard someone come back to uh, this kind of a presentation from a Protestant and a Reformed point of view and say, you're making it sound as though we don't have any authority, but we do have authorities. Our creed, our denominational statement, our church, we have authorities in the Protestant world. And this is what he gave his illustrations. He said, just like there's an authority in the Supreme Court over you know, readings of the law in the United States, or just like a mom and dad have authority in their home over their children, um, I think he mentioned another one, but we have authority, you know, true, real, um, authentic spiritual authority. And my response to it was this, okay, mom and dad have a true spiritual authority in your home. So that if, if they say, we're all going to the Bible study on Wednesday night, you're going to go. Get in the minivan. Yeah. But when you say they have authority, a spiritual authority, when you say that, do you mean that if mom and dad teach their children that Mary was bodily assumed into heaven, that it's true? and their children have to accept it? Okay, or do you mean by binding authority in the Supreme Court that whatever they decide is true? They can legislate from the bench, as it were, you know? Yeah. No, it's not It's not an See, absolute it's, authority. It's an authority that's accountable to another form of authority. Yeah, it's just accountable as long as you agree with it. Yeah. And, and if you don't agree with At it... At the end the, of the day, the, that means the authority is you. See, so sola scriptura and the right of private judgment, it does have these implications. I think they're inescapable, and... Um, I want to, before we close down, I, uh, you know, I want to focus on a, a passage with you. Ephesians 4, verses 11 through 16. It's a passage that I mentioned just very briefly last week, but I want to kind of dig into it a little bit, a little bit more here, Matt, because this, this is a passage that really had a profound effect on me during my own study of these issues when I was still a, a Protestant pastor. Okay, in this passage, you'll remember the Apostle Paul, he's talking about the need for unity in the church. And with the with this issue in mind, that is unity and the need for unity, Paul says that God gave to his church apostles and prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers so that the body of Christ might be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God. In order that we would no longer be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the cunning and craftiness of men. Okay. In other words, let me set this up. What this what St. Paul is saying here is that because God cares about unity and because God wants his church unified, therefore he gave his church pastors and teachers because he doesn't want everybody blown about by every wind and wave of doctrine because of that. I know exactly where this is going. Yeah, because of that <laughs> he gave to his church pastors and teachers. Now, as I was thinking about this, and it's so many years ago now, I mean suddenly a thought kind of just reached out from the text and grabbed me by the throat and began to throttle me. And, and this is the thought. 
It was the realization that what Paul is envisioning here, what Paul is describing here, it would only work, it could only work if there was some authoritative teaching, some authoritative body of doctrine to which individual pastors and teachers were bound and to which their teaching had to conform. And here's why. You see, if this was the case, if there's an authoritative body of teaching, as there is in the Catholic Church, that is a basic authoritative doctrine of God, of the Trinity, of Christ, of salvation, of the sacraments, of the Church, okay? A basic whole structure of theology. If this is in existence, then these pastors and teachers that Paul's talking about, I mean, even if they were scattered all over the world, a couple in Burma, a couple in Canada, you know, a couple in Chad, whatever, when they taught their congregations, they would be building up their, the church in unity. But the reverse also hit me, and that is... And the reverse is more commonly true. If all these pastors and teachers are practicing sola scriptura and the right of private judgment, scattered all over the world, then in their own studies, they're going to come to points of view that, that divide them from one another. They're going to separate. They're going to form denominations and sects and independent churches. They're going to go their own way. And the result is going to be, the result is going to be that those specifically called by God to unite the people of God become the very forces stirring up the wind and waves of doctrine and blowing the children of God back and forth and all over the place. And it it, it just kind of it just became clear to me, almost like a, a you know just a crystal clear and moment of enlightenment that the premise of sola scriptura and the right of private judgment can only lead to this. It, it makes sense that it would lead to this. And in fact, this is not just theoretical. This is what did happen, as we saw, within two years of, of Luther saying that everybody has the right to decide for themselves. He's saying, oh my word, there are as many views as there are heads now. What am I going to do? So it did lead to this kind of division, and it has continued to lead to this for 500 years now. Sola Scriptura, it, it doesn't work, but even deeper, it cannot work because the, the very structure, the very logic of it leads toward division. So this is sort of one of the things that uh, was part of my closing argument last week, which is how is it that without the canon of Scripture up through the first three or four hundred years of the church, everybody agrees on all the significant major points of doctrine, even though they're scattered to every corner of the, the Christianized world. But once Sola Scriptura hits, then everybody stops agreeing. Um, the other thing is, is that what are the doctrines that all Christians hold in common? And this is something we talked about several mm -hmm, episodes mm -hmm, ago. Mm -hmm. The Trinity, the divinity of Jesus, the canon of the New Testament. Well, those are all the things that were decided before Sola Scriptura. The things that were completely uncontroversial were things like the Eucharist and baptism and, mm -hmm. and, and these other things. And once Sola Scriptura hits, these things become extremely controversial. The only things that Christians even have in common were the things that were decided under that principle right there. Yeah, that's—yes, I mean, that's another whole road. I mean, it's true. And, and Christians will look back on those decisions, and they'll hold them firmly. But you know what? Even if—because uh, obviously the early church wasn't— uh, it's not like everybody was preaching all the same things. There was no. there was discrepancy, there was um, controversy and all that. But still, you have to face the fact that in the early centuries of the church, what we see is one church developing 
spreading, filling the Roman Empire that does have one basic viewpoint developing through time. And you have some separations, like you have the you have the Coptic churches breaking off in the 6th century, then in the 11th century you have the East-West split and all that. But this is of a different order of magnitude, I mean, completely different order than what happened in 1517 when Luther nails his theses and, you know, and it begins to split. It's of another order. It's of another kind. And that's because it's based on another foundation, a different foundation. Now, listen to the admission of Protestant historian and Luther scholar, in fact, Heiko Obermann. This is in his book, Luther, Man Between God and the Devil. Very scholarly, very good book. This is what Heiko Obermann says. Application of the Reformation principle of sola scriptura, the scriptures alone, has not brought the certainty Luther anticipated. It has, in fact, been responsible for a multiplicity of explanations and interpretations that, hear this, seem to render absurd any dependence on the clarity of the scriptures. Here's a Luther scholar writing in the 20th century. I mean, he's alive now and writing, at least I believe he's still alive. He's basically saying that the that sola scriptura didn't lead to unity of, of the faith. It led to fragmentation and splintering and division. And he says, of such a nature, of such a, uh, a volume, I guess you'd say, or quantity, that as to seem to render absurd this idea, oh, Scripture is just very clear, and all you know, anybody with average intelligence can go and read the New Testament, and they'll all come to the right doctrines. And if you're not coming to the right doctrines, it's because you're making a simple mistake in interpretation. That's what he said. This is a Luther scholar. Now, at a certain point, the question just came to me. Um, does it make sense to think that Jesus would have founded his church on such a foundation? I mean, does it make sense? Does it make sense to think that essentially Jesus would have um, inspired 27 books and handed them to Matt Swaim and Ken Hensley and everyone else and then said, I will pray for you. Do your best. Yeah, I hope he wouldn't have handed them to me. <laughs> yeah. I kind of agree with that. Yeah, I know but, you would. But, but um, you know, here you go. Do your best. Does it even make sense, you know, to, to, to think that that's the kind of foundation that the Lord would have built his church on? And it seemed to me the reverse. It seemed to me that if Jesus wanted his church to be one— if Jesus cared that his church be one church and that and, and that his church have one essential set of beliefs even, that there had to be, he had to have established his church with some principle of authority outside of the Bible alone. And I mean by that some authoritative, authoritative, authoritative binding way of defining the true doctrines of Christianity, some authoritative way of settling disputes that would inevitably arise. Otherwise, unity is impossible, and knowledge is impossible. You know, on that basis, you can't really know that you've got the right doctrines at all. So no, knowledge is impossible, unity is impossible. Yeah, and that's going to lead us to our final question that we're going to look sure. at ne next week. We've seen, as you mentioned at the beginning, we've seen that Sola Scriptura doesn't appear to be scriptural, We've seen that it sure doesn't appear to have been the teaching of the early church or the practice. In fact, it wasn't the teaching or the practice of the church all the way up until the time of the Reformation. We've seen now that it doesn't work and that, it, in, in fact, in almost like a mechanistic, machine-like um, way, it leads toward division and frag fragmentation. But what I want to ask next week is this. Does Sola Scriptura even make sense? That is, is it logical? Is it even logical? Yeah. And again, this is 
there's so many things I would like to say here, but um, say one of them. I'll say uh, the only one I'll say as you're saying all this. Uh, would Jesus leave us this kind of system? Um, if he w- would he have left us sola scriptura, e- even would he have left us sola scriptura without a guardianship to tell us that sola scriptura was the principle? In the yeah. sense that that you yeah. know. St. Augustine says something to the effect, and I'm going to, I'm quoting from vague memory here, so I'm not going to get it exact, but, you know, I would have not have believed in the authority of the Bible had not the Catholic Church told me it was true. Um, and you kind of end up in a feedback loop. It says it, it, you can't do the either or at a certain point. You have to say sola scriptura is true because someone told you it was true. And why, why should you believe them? You know, yeah, and, you can't you can't separate those questions out, and that goes into the logical question of it too. So, yeah, that's actually where we're going to just sit for our entire episode next week is on, on exactly the kind of point you're making that for sola scriptura to be true, for you to even know you've got the right twenty seven books in your New Testament, you have to ask where did I get them? Who told do me? Do I trust that they, the people that that gave them to me? Yeah, who told me that these twenty seven were the right ones? And do I trust them? But but I don't want to you know I don't want to steal the thunder yeah. of our episode next week. That's where we're, what, what we're going to talk about. But the thing is, bottom line, if sola scriptura turns out to not be scriptural, and it turns out to not be historical, not be the teaching of the church, and if it turns out that it can't even work and it doesn't work, and the proof is all around us, and then if it turns out that it actually has a logical contradiction at the heart of it, then you got to ask the question: Isn't sola scriptura self defeating? I mean, doesn't sola scriptura defeat itself, a, a, a self-defeating proposition, you know, they will say, or, you know, and that's certainly the conclusion that I came to. And yeah. and that's why I wanted to start our conversations in these episodes, Matt, by focusing on sola scriptura, because I know that it's it's a key issue, and it was certainly a key issue to me. Yeah, and, certainly um, a key issue to me, and to so many of my friends who don't are no longer believers at all, because once sola scriptura fell apart for them, they thought, well, maybe none of it's true. Um, but the, hopefully what we're helping people understand is there's another way to think about this. And hopefully we'll get into that and, and hint at that through the course of things. Um, glad you were along for another episode of On the Journey. Uh, I'm Matt Swaim along with my colleague Ken Hensley. Please subscribe to our YouTube channel to catch uh, episodes that you haven't seen yet and, and catch the future episodes as they pop up. Come visit us at chnetwork.org as well. Ken, thanks again. We'll talk to you again next week. We'll talk to you. And I, I do want to say quickly that we do have this put up if I'm right, on about five different podcast um, oh, platforms. Yeah. So iTunes, people, people, Spotify, people who like above, to, yeah. People who like to listen while you work, you can, you can listen there too. And share.